Well, good evening, and thank you very much, Vice-Chancellor. I'm, I'm incredibly grateful to you and the university, and of course to the university's LGBTI advisory group for inviting me here to speak, and thus enabling me to shine a spotlight on what has to be one of the areas of gravest concern still today for the LGBTI community and its allies here in the UK. I speak, of course, of what is often seen as the toxic intersection between faith and sexuality and of those who sadly are caught through no fault of their own in what is now finally being understood to be the, at times, deadly crossfire. I recognise that these are strong and emotive words, but Oxford is no stranger to that. Indeed, I can think of no better place to speak out about the evils that continue to traumatise so many of us even here in one of the most progressive societies in the world, and to call for a new resolve to champion our cause. For surely that is what LGBTI History Month is all about. It's a timely opportunity for us to reflect on the pain endured by so many for so long, which, as I will share, is still affecting thousands who remain hidden in plain sight. I speak, of course, of LGBTI people of faith, do, those who found themselves born into families and cultures where an integral part of their innate human identity is viewed as unacceptable by everyone, and I mean everyone around them. Their families, their friends, their religious leaders, their religious communities, and by default, their God. For those who are being taught in religious schools, many will find that too a place of prejudice and trauma. For they live in bubbles that are hermetically sealed, where there is no emergency exit, no matter how hard they pray or how much they plead with God. They exist in a real-life version of the escape room, the ultimate horror movie, where all the doors are locked and there is no secret hidden key that can bring them out to safety. They are forever trapped. And what is worse, this is nightmare um, situation is faced by those who are least able to cope with it. Young people, children even, who are just learning what it is to experience love and attraction. Teenagers who have surges of hormones and questions and doubts and fears, and yet no one they can turn to for help and support, not without risking losing everything they have. Be under no illusion. The scarring that this does at the start of a young person's life is immense. Please don't underestimate the trauma that is associated with having to navigate such a difficult and costly path alone, where your whole world, everywhere you, everyone you know and hold dear, embraces the same united belief, expressed in love, that who you are is unacceptable. What's more, you know that the secret you carry will cause great pain to those you love and that ultimately those you turn to for help, if you ever do, will strongly urge you to do anything but embrace and celebrate who you are. And the truth is, in all honesty, that there are those who just don't make it. There are those who find it all just too much. 
where the energy required to keep going, to keep putting one foot in front of another, day by long day, with no remittance, is completely beyond their grasp. And so they take the only way out they know. And many of us here know some of them by name. And mark my words, they will be more. Right now in Britain, there there are young kids suffering alone and terrified. In a country which prides itself as being at the forefront of LGBTI rights, there is still one large hill to climb, which has been left untouched for far too long. It is deemed the impenetrable or impassable mountain trail, but conquer it we must for the sake of those whose lives depend on it. You think I exaggerate? I'm aware I've been accused of weaponising safeguarding, of emotionally blackmailing people to get them to side with my own so-called liberal views. Come on, Jane, things really aren't that bad. This isn't America, you know. I've lost, thank goodness for that. I've lost count of the times this week that I've been contacted by journalists waiting to do stories on conversion therapy here in the UK. The request is always the same. Jane, I want to profile some of your victims. I want to tell their story. I really didn't think that this sort of thing was happening in the UK. I thought it was just in the far-right evangelical movements in the United States and in Africa. And then I have to ask them, why do you think that? Aren't they aware that there are those views over here too? That they've always been here? That we Brits are just as bad? That the religious right influences are just as strong, although perhaps slightly more hidden. I then have to explain that no, I can't put them in touch with young people who've been through conversion therapy, as most I know are just too fragile to be able to talk to the media. That because of what they've been through, most are suffering severe mental health issues and can't cope with any more stress. Added to which, most have already been rejected by their family and friends after coming out normally after finally admitting that therapy just didn't work. And yet, if they then admit to having undergone such therapy, they will put themselves at risk of further rejection by their new LGBTI friends, who will think that they are mad. It's why this story has been hidden for so long, as the media have found it impossible to get the case studies they need to sell their papers or achieve high viewing figures. But I digress. Young lives are at risk, seriously at risk, and we need to take urgent action to recognise this and protect them. The faith communities have shown themselves totally incapable of taking this matter seriously. If anything, they've sought to willfully ignore it and have consistently looked to sweep it under the carpet, as happens with all inconvenient truths. Many within the Church of England, for instance, would rather not rock the boat. For for there is, we're told, so much at stake, such as the very future of the Anglican Communion. Heaven forbid that the lives of young teenagers should get in the way. How many lives is it worth, I wonder? Seriously, one, two, five, a hundred? I seem to remember Jesus himself telling a story about a lost sheep and the shepherd leaving the entire flock to rescue that one at risk. But no, evidently, the unity of the body of Christ is far more important. We will, therefore, I'm afraid, need to look to far more robust measures from our governments to deal with this, which they have fortunately publicly committed to. 
So ladies and gentlemen, tonight I would like to do three things. Firstly, I'd like to outline the robust evidence we now have that proves incontrovertibly that this is a significant current safeguarding issue. Secondly, I want to share with you what those who have previously suffered would like to see happen in future. And thirdly, I'd like to offer some thoughts about what the barriers and excuses will be from various quarters that risk stopping this issue being addressed even in institutions, dare I say, such as this very university, which I'm afraid itself is not exempt. So firstly, the evidence. Last year, my foundation ran the first national faith um, survey. Now, this is where I have to see if I can get this work. I have got some um, printouts, one-page printouts of some of the data I'm about to show you. Uh, it's a summary. Uh, and it links you online to all the data, so uh, you, you may not want to scribble anyway, but just so you know, there is a handout if you need it. So, the National Faith and Sexuality Survey examined the role religious belief has on people's understanding and their acceptance of their sexual orientation in the UK. It was the first survey of its kind and was open to all individuals over 16 currently resident in the UK. Participants came from all ages, sexualities and racial ethnic groups and had a variety of beliefs, uh, including those of no belief. Indeed, I went out of my way to work with Humanist UK to ensure we captured the views of those who they call ap apostates, sorry, apostates, who have rejected their faith, often because of the difficulties they've experienced over sexuality issues. That said, the survey primarily attracted responses from those who had a Christian faith background, despite our best efforts to appeal to other faiths. It's also important to note that whilst the primary focus of this survey was on sexuality, 2% of respondents identified as a gender different to that assigned of birth. The project was overseen by an influential advisory board, which consisted of some of the most senior stati statistical, religious and healthcare professionals in the UK, such as the Bishop of Manchester, who was the lead bishop on statistical research within the Church of England, and Professor Sir Bernard Silverman, a former president of the Royal Statistical Society and a revered academic. In that sense, we put ourselves through an internal peer review process. Indeed, Professor Sir Bernard Silverman has gone on the record himself to say, the processes which the Ozan Foundation put in place for this work and the way in which they worked with and consulted the independent advisory board mean that in my view, this survey should definitely be regarded as having received full peer review scrutiny. The survey was created using SurveyMonkey software and was made available through social media. Indeed, it was publicised in the same way that the government publicised their own national LGBTI survey in 2017. I'm grateful to organisations such as Stonewall, Peter Tatchell, the LBTI Press, the Christian Media and the national media for covering it and for the hundreds of other individuals and organisations that publicised it. Just out of interest, actually, how many people in this room actually took part in this or was aware of it? We've got one at the back. Okay, well, it shows there was an awful lot more. But, um, well, we still had quite a few. We doubled our completion target with over 4,600 responses, of which just under half identified... This is the right-hand uh, chart. I'm conscious that some of these figures are going to be quite small on, on this, but you'll get an idea of the, the bar that's pointing out ahead of the other. So on the right-hand side, 44.5%. 
45%, sorry, had identified as heterosexual or straight. Everyone else identified across the sexual minority groups, 2,300 of them, asexual, bisexual, gay, lesbian, <coughs> queer, pansexual, or same-sex attracted. On this last point, I was keen to ensure that those who call themselves same-sex attracted feel, felt comfortable with the questionnaire. These are typically conservative Christians who don't want to identify themselves as gay or lesbian, but would rather say they experience same-sex attraction, and as such believe that they must be celibate for life or marry someone of the opposite sex. I therefore invited a coordinator from their support organisation, Living Out, to review the questionnaire, and I am grateful to the Reverend Dr Sean Doherty for his constructive comments, all of which I implemented and which resulted in 57 same-sex attracted people responding. We didn't hide the fact in the executive report that this is, by definition, a self-selected group of respondents. Indeed, it would have been impossible to do anything otherwise, as randomly surveying the entire population would not yield a large sample of the particular LGBTI groups of interest. We are, however, able to compare the profile of respondents with typical ONS and census data. And we therefore recognised upfront in our report that respondents aged 35 to 64 were slightly overrepresented, while those aged 16 to 24 were slightly underrepresented. Those aged 65 and over were significantly underrepresented, perhaps not surprisingly given that this was all carried out online. Respondents in England were also slightly overrepresented compared to Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. And despite our best efforts to reach minority ethnic groups, white respondents were somewhat overrepresented, while those from black, black British, Asian and Asian British backgrounds were underrepresented. This was disappointing, but not entirely unexpected given the tremendous difficulties of the LGBTI community in those cultures and the significant risks associated with being open, even in a survey where the respondents have promised full confidentiality. One of our recommendations within the report is to <coughs> highlight the urgent need for more research into this specific area so that their voices can be more easily heard. And the results are shocking. Even to someone like myself, who has been heavily involved in pastoring the LGBTI community, I must admit I wasn't prepared for the scale of the harm that we uncovered, and perhaps even more shockingly, the age at which this was being inflicted. What is more, to learn that 22 people, that's the highlighted yellow box at the bottom, who had the courage to fill out this survey, had been subjected to forced sexual activity with someone of the opposite sex. That is rape. And they'd gone through that in order to try and change their sexual orientation with one person currently aged under 24. This made me stop and weep. As Bishop Paul Bays, my chair, has said in his forward to the report, we must thank those who have taken the trouble to complete the survey and to provide the data in this report. The findings of the report make hard reading for communities of faith, and in the case of the church, hard reading for an inst institution that believes it's built on the love of Christ. For too many lives at far too young an age have been traumatised by a hidden inner conflict between their love of God and their innate desire to love another human being. This conflict is harsh and potentially deadly, 
The level of considered and attempted suicide reported here is shocking and sobering. The statistics reflect lives which have been scarred and strained by mixed messaging of love, acceptance, condemnation and fear. He, like I, wishes to thank those who've revisited this pain in order to help us all better understand. And like Bishop Paul, I hope that the courageous sharing of our respondents will not go unheard and that human flourishing and human life will not be treated as a mere intellectual battleground for dry conversation. I speak with specific reference to the 458 respondents, a tenth of the survey, that green box, who had actual experience of trying to change their sexual orientation. Their answers provide the first ever concrete study into so-called conversion therapy, an issue that the government's own LGBTI survey highlighted as a significant issue, with 2% of 108,000 respondents reporting to have gone through it, and a further 5% having been offered it. It might be worth uh, me giving a brief explanation here as to what I mean by conversion therapy. Forgive me, I'm just going to have some water. It's generally accepted as an umbrella term that describes any activity that is taken with the express aim of attempting to change some sexual, someone's sexual orientation. And I've given you a list of different uh, types here and people's responses to them. The questionnaire explained that it includes attempts for a range of religious practices, prayer, deliverance, emotional healing and fasting, through to counselling, aversion therapy and sexual activity. The survey results provide strong evidence of the harm that attempts to change sexual orientation are reported to inflict. For instance, more than half of those, that's the uh, brown lane in the middle, who had attempted to change their sexual orientated re orientation reported mental health issues, and less than a third said that they had gone on to lead a happy and fulfilled life. Less than a third. Is that high or is that low? Nearly half stated they'd found it hard to accept myself for who I am and that they'd had to leave or change their faith groups. Of those who suffered mental health issues, which was nearly two-thirds of those who tried to change their sexual orientation, 91 people said they had attempted suicide, while 193 said they had suicidal thoughts. 113 people said they had self-harmed, which was significantly higher amongst women, and 69 had suffered from eating disorders. Can I just stress this again? We're talking about a fifth of those who had attempted to change their sexual orientation who had actually gone on to attempt suicide. And this is just out of a small survey group. Ah, but some will say, surely they were prevalent to mental health issues anyway. We know that the LGBTQ community, that's the group who define themselves as being one of the sexual minorities in this survey, so that's how I call it in this particular survey, LGBTQ+. We know that uh, the community have a higher prevalence of mental health issues than the general public. Surely this is just a reflection of that. Well, the survey shows that there is clear evidence that the well-being of the LGBTQ community is said to be significantly impacted by the experience of attempting to change sexual orientation and that their spiritual well-being and religious faith is said to be negatively affected by the inner conflicts they've experienced because of their sexual orientation. 
These are average mean scores for uh, measures to do with physical health, mental health and emotional well-being. And on all of them, we found that the weighted average mean score for the full group of LGBTQ plus uh, respondents who hadn't gone through uh, um, conversion therapy, which is the top set, was significantly higher than the bottom set. Perhaps not surprisingly, LGBTQ respondents with experience attempting to change their sexual orientation were significantly more likely to agree that religion had been a source of conflict in my life and that it caused me to hate myself for being who I am. These are statements we asked them to agree. And that religion no longer played a central part in their lives compared to those with no experience of attempting to change. You may just wonder why they just didn't give it all up. That might be a question you might want to ask me later. What was perhaps particularly alarming is that it is clear that this is an issue that specifically affects vulnerable LGBTQ teenagers, given that half of the respondents said that, that they attempted to change their sexual orientation whilst 18 or under. Several reported they'd been under 12 at the time. So we are definitely dealing with minors. Ah, but are these cases recent, you might ask? Well, 60 of those respondents were still only under 25 when they completed this questionnaire in December. So yes, it is recent. Another area that could cause us great concern is that few said they had sought advice from the medical profession. This is who they went to for advice. But nearly half said they'd sought it from a religious leader. The influence of religious leaders is profound. They were the most likely to be identified as the person who had advised or forced attempts to, to change their sexual orientation. That's the yellow line in the middle. For far more so, I should say, than parents, which is the green line at the top. And that should worry us, particularly in relation to minors. And yet they were the least likely person respondents that felt able to be open with. That's the blue line, this is the average. And one can understand why, given their role in advising or forcing people to change. So why did people try to change their sexual orientation? What was their motivation? Well, you won't be, perhaps be surprised to learn that these attempts were reported as being... Uh, sorry, why did they decide to change? Well, quite apart from the fact that 43 respondents said they'd been given no choice and had to undergo it, that's towards the bottom of that list. It seems the primary motivations for attempting to change were due either to a person's religious beliefs or their internalised homophobia. This was evidenced by the fact that nearly two-thirds of those who admitted attempting to change said they'd done so because they were ashamed of their desires. Or, uh, and, and a quarter said they didn't want to be associated with LGBT people or their lifestyle. The top line, though, nearly three quarters said they'd done so because I believed my desires were sinful and over half said it was because my religious leader disapproved. This, ladies and gentlemen, is what happens when you put a young, impressionable LGBTQ teenager in a hermetically sealed bubble where all the messages they receive from those they respect and love is that their desires are sinful and that who they are is unacceptable. They wonder they will do anything to try to change. I know because that is precisely what happened to me. I would have done anything to change. Indeed, I tried virtually everything I could to change. I just wanted to be like everyone else. Married with children, acceptable and respected. I am, but that's a long journey, isn't it? <laughs> 
you have to read the book to find that one out. <laughs> Having tried increasingly uh, more severe forms of therapy, with constantly, which constantly left me feeling deeply disillusioned and depressed, not to mention an utter failure in the eyes of God, I then tried to accept the subsequent con consequences that I'd have to be single and celibate for life. This felt like an equally impossible burden to me, which severely impacted my own mental health and drove me for a second time to hospital, given that I was suffering from acute stress, and then on to a second nervous breakdown. Worryingly, the survey shows that there are cur currently 117 people who participated in this survey who are currently trying to live with the same prison sentence imposed by their religious belief and believing that they have to be celibate for life. And I personally believe that that is a ticking time bomb. So did these attempts to change actually work? Well, you won't be perhaps surprised to learn that these attempts were reported as being overwhelmingly unsuccessful. Nearly three quarters stated that it didn't work, and I don't believe it works for others. However, 13 people uh, out of 361 said it did work completely, and another 13 said it didn't work for me, but I do believe it works for others. One in six, 60 out of 361, agreed that it seemed to work for a while, but then wore off, and I would class myself in that category. And it's interesting to try and understand what's going on there. The amount of social conditioning and, and psychological conditioning does, does make you believe that you are healed. So what did respondents want to see happen? Well, the majority of respondents, you won't be surprised, over 50%, 51% in fact, were indeed in favour of criminalising sexual orientation change therapy. This, perhaps unsurprisingly, rose significantly amongst those with experience of attempting to change their sexual orientation as well as with gay and lesbian respondents. Interestingly, there's quite a marked difference across the age groups, with those under 55 being clearly in favour of it being made a criminal offence, including up to three quarters of 16 to 18 year olds. Virtually all who wanted it criminalised that this was because they were aware it damaged a person's mental health, 98%. And a significant proportion also stated that it was because they believed it causes self-hate. I'm just going to pause for a minute and go off script. You may think all these statistics are blindingly obvious. I can assure you there's a group of very learned religious leaders out there who think this is all bunkum, that I'm making these figures up, i.e. that it does work, that people should be going through it. And that's why we need this research. But I'll... Anyway, I'll come back. So given that so many are so clear about the dangers of attempting to change sexual orientation therapy, why are we seeing it still being practiced today? How do we protect those most vulnerable to going through it, either voluntarily or forcibly? And what are the barriers that are likely to stop this issue finally being addressed? Well, in my mind, there are three notable barriers which all deserve naming. And the first is the age-old barrier of disbelief, which I've just touched on where the default position is to ignore or discredit the results because they are just too plain inconvenient. Within hours of the survey results being made public, there were comments and then blogs from various Christians, mostly evangelical, trying to set out reasons why people shouldn't pay any attention to these shocking results. No matter that the project had been overseen by such an eminent group, including a senior evangelical, Dr Jamie Harrison, who's the chair of the House of Laity for the Church of England, and himself a GP. It reminded me 
of the time back in 2001 when I did some focus groups research whilst on the Archbishop's Council, of which I was a founding member, in order to try and reflect back to the church what people on the periphery of it thought of the church. just wonder what you think of the church. Might be a bit scared to find out, but... Um, Anyway, following a slightly awkward silence amongst my colleagues, no doubt in part because of the rather critical nature of the results I'd just shared, which highlighted the fact that the people found the church aloof, hypocritical, stuck in its ways and beset with internal wranglings over sex, a certain archbishop piped up, but Jane, you've spoken to the wrong people. People don't really think this. I remember there was an even more awkward uh, silence as people nervously shuffled in their seats before one member of the clergy bravely and yet quietly responded, Oh, but Archbishop, they do. We just don't want to admit it. It was exactly the same when I presented some findings a couple of years ago from a YouGov research poll that I ran regarding people's attitudes towards same-sex marriage. I dared to ask the question which religious group, if any, respondents affiliated themselves with, as well as which worshipping community, if any, they were actively part of, in order that we could break the results down by practising Anglicans and practising Catholics and so on. Whichever way you cut the data, the fact remained that results clearly showed there were significantly more Anglicans in favour of same-sex marriage than those who were against it. Not comfortable findings for our traditionalist friends, who then tried valiantly to dismiss the data by claiming that these weren't real Anglicans. <laughs> Evidently, according to the critics, just because people said they went to church didn't necessarily mean they were proper Anglicans. I must admit, I beg to differ, given the perilous state of church attendance in the UK. I personally believe that if someone claims to be a churchgoer, especially if they're under 30, where the results were most pronounced in favour of same-sex marriage, then the truth is that they really are likely to be one. Let's be honest, not that many young people are that eager to tell the world that they go to church these days. Ironically, as an aside, I should just mention that the one group found to be significantly behind the rest of the general public in its acceptance of same-sex marriage was, in fact, Anglican men over 55, the very group that was being so vociferous, so the results were pretty consistent. Therefore, as I say, people would do, will do anything they can to dismiss data they don't want to hear, such as questioning the methodology used, as many academics here will know. Hence the importance of being open to peer review, as indeed we were with the FAITH survey. The fact that we uncovered, in a sample of over 4,600 respondents, 91 people who had attempted suicide should make us all stop in our tracks and want to know more, rather than dismissing the data out of hand. Had it been just one person who had attempted suicide, that should be seen as one person too many by a church whose focus is to believe in the sanctity of life. The callousness with which these results have been treated by some is breathtaking, but sadly not surprising for it is easier to dismiss or avoid than to actually engage. The second barrier relates to matters much closer to home, particularly with institutions of learning, including, I'm afraid, perhaps this prestigious university, my own alma mater. Indeed, it risks becoming prevalent in all places of public discourse. I refer, of course, to the recent discussions surrounding what some will term free speech, 
and others will determine as hate speech, specifically in relation to the sensitive topics of sexuality and gender. Should we protect the deemed right of university lecturers and supervisors to express their views in public, even if they are highly offences and likely to cause both hurt and, as we've seen tonight, harm? I was reflecting on this question during my first reading of the Church of England's new pastoral resources, produced by the Pastoral Advisory Group, which aims to provide guidelines for the care of LGBTI people of all ages within the Church. In what has been acknowledged as a groundbreaking first step for the Church of England, this group has managed to persuade the House of Bishops to boldly name six pervading email evils which are a bar to good pastoral practice of LGBTI people namely prejudice, silence, ignorance, fear, hypocrisy and misuse of power. Whilst I myself have been quite publicly critical of these guidelines and their complete inability to tackle the seriousness of the safeguarding issues I've just highlighted, I do recognise that there is some merit in being open and honest about the difficulties that beset us, the LGBTI community within the church. As a necessary next step, however, I've issued the challenge to all those involved in overseeing the church's formal discussions around human sexuality as to whether they too are guilty of perpetrating these evils. And I'd like to suggest that you here in Oxford might be in a position to lead the way amongst our academic institutions by having the courage to have the same discourse. Are you guilty of prejudice, silence, ignorance, fear, hypocrisy and misuse of power. Well, personally, I think the university has done extremely well in its recent work, helped, I'm sure, by your LGBTI advisory board in addressing most of these evils. You are breaking the silence. You are tackling ignorance. You are confronting both fear and hypocrisy. However, I venture to ask whether there is still prejudice in some quarters and perhaps more importantly, where there is still a misuse of power. As the Church of England's pastoral resource rightly asks regarding this specific evil, can it be right that pastoral encounters still take place without awareness of the disparities of power? And this to me is particularly relevant in an institution where there are enormous disparities of power between students and lecturers, as well as between students and their supervisors. To have one's very identity questioned by someone in such an eminent position of power is, I believe, abusive in the extreme. For me, this is not a matter of freedom of speech, but rather a form of emotional abuse that gives minimal protection to the vulnerable adult who is both the subject and the object of the prejudice, and who themselves may be dealing with issues of self-hate and internalised homophobia, which these messages can only reinforce. Toughen up, I hear you say. Learn to develop a thicker skin. But would we say that to our black and Asian colleagues when questioned whether they have a right to exist alongside us in the world, to marry, to love and be loved? Would we say that to our Jewish friends when they are confronted with those who hold wholly repugnant views that refuse to accept the horrors of the Holocaust? I ask you to think for a minute what it must feel like to have spent one's formative years growing up in an environment, as I set out earlier, where everyone you know finds your sexual or gender identity abhorrent and where you constantly yearn for the day when you can finally escape to a place where you can at least be your true self. 
only to find that this very place is just as abusive, just as homophobic, just as prejudiced. What is worse, that those in positions of power and authority over you, to whom you are expected to defer, are purveyors of the same hostile views. Please let us not be under any disillusionment here. Those who hold such homophobic views are prepared to spout them publicly, not for meaningful debate and discourse, but because they want those around them to know exactly where they stand. Indeed, for many, it's akin to taking a stand against what they perceive as an increasingly liberal and corrupt society, where they see themselves as the last bastion of truth. To the, to the LGBTI student concerned, a vulnerable adult, in my opinion, this can feel like a declaration of war, not an invitation to debate, and one where they are perceived as the enemy. Many will feel they have no choice but to sit there in silence and just take it. They will chalk up the experience as yet another reason why they should remain ashamed of their desires and proof that they are unacceptable in a world that judges them not because of what they have said or done, but because of how they have been created. It will add further strain to their deteriorating mental health and will, sadly, more often than not, lead to greater well-being complications later in life. Freedom of speech has been hard won in our country, and of course it is a bedrock of any stable and open democracy. But like everything that is precious, I believe it should be carefully defined and have its limits. Most of us have an innate sense of what these limits should be. There has until recently been an, an unspoken moral and ethical code to which we all, well nearly all, subscribe. The difficulty is when the boundaries of this moral code are not shared, and when the ability to cause offence becomes, in reality, the ability to cause great harm. I, for one, am a great believer in the importance of promoting a society that enables freedom of speech to the point that it does no harm. And ladies and gentlemen, if there is clear evidence of harm, as our survey has surely shown, then we have a duty of care to protect particularly those who are in a vulnerable position to, due to either known or unconscious power differentials. Primum non nocere, first do no harm, is one of the principal precepts of bioethics on which our medical professions is founded. I believe that this ancient maxim would do well to be the principal precept of our academic institutions today too, a new code for all to live by. So the final barrier that will stop us addressing the issues is, I fear, politics, both with a small and a capital P. Politics in the church, politics in the government, politics in the mental health professions, and even politics within the LGBTI communities themselves. This topic is beset by difficulties and it touches so many red buttons for so many people. And as with so many issues that concern politics, with a capital P, the debates regarding the presenting issues, such as in this case, safeguarding of young LGBTI teenagers, become proxy debates for other more contentious issues where powerful interests are at work. Some of these interests are ob obvious, such as party politics, both in the church and in the state, and some are not so obvious, such as in the medical professions. This could be a lecture in itself, so I'll just name the barrier and encourage you to watch how the debate unfolds in the years ahead as we discuss how best to ban or end conversion therapy. 
there's a subtle difference there. And whether in doing so we can begin in bring in legislation that can truly safeguard the most vulnerable in our midst. So in conclusion, I firmly believe that the gravest challenge that still faces the LGBTI community today is that of protecting those caught in the deadly crossfire of debates concerning faith and sexuality. Our survey has shown that there are many whose well-being is significantly at risk because of these debates and may well lead some to consider conversion therapy, which poses even greater, more deadly risk. I believe that there is an overwhelming desire for a ban on conversion therapy to be implemented. However, what is needed even more is for those who subscribe to a non-inclusive theology to see the harm that their teaching and views cause. There will always be resistance to this, with obfuscation, politics and debates around free speech each playing their part. But the tide is turning and a new day is indeed dawning. I think it's no coincidence that faith and sexuality, or perhaps more accurately, faith and desire, the outworking of our sexuality, are two of the greatest powers at work within the various tribes and groupings that constitute humankind. I'd suggest that they are the touch paper topics that have fueled more arguments and more wars than any other forces at work in our world, either now or indeed in the past. No wonder, therefore, that their nexus is causing such trauma and pain. I remember my friend Nadia Boltz-Weber once asking me why I thought the church had such difficulties over issues to do with sex. I said I thought it was because we were scared by the power that sexual desire can have over people. She nodded and laughingly added, I think it's because the church sees sex as the competition. How true. Certainly I think that's how society sees it, and by your reaction, so do you. They perceive the church as being anti-sex, ashamed of sex, embarrassed about sex. Let's be honest, it's all about don't. Don't do this, don't touch this, don't go there. Negative messages right from the start. Sex as the competition. The truth of the matter is, though, that God created sex. We are each created as sexual beings with sexual desires and sexual needs. It's an integral part of who we are and that part of us is good. Indeed it is something to be joyfully celebrated. For sex is the ultimate language of desire and love, the union of two becoming one. And it is that love, that deep, intimate, life-giving, selfless love that our Christian faith is founded upon. It is so simple and yet so profound. God is love. He has created, and I do use he, I'm afraid, but he has created us both to be objects of his love and agents of his love. For he loves us with a passion and yearns that we in turn will come to love him passionately too. Not through fear, not through duty, but because we actively choose our own free, free will to do so. And it's this, that's reflected in our internal desire to love and be loved by another who we freely choose and who freely chooses us. Whoever we are, whoever we're attracted to, we've been created to love and be loved. So rather than being in competition, these two powers of faith and desire are in my mind intrinsically linked. Once we fully understood the magnitude of this, 
Once we've grasped the length and breadth and height and width of this love, we will, I believe, finally fully understand what it means to be human and to be made in the image of God. However, there's sadly some way off coming to a mind on this. So in the meantime, we must look to safeguard the vulnerable and ensure that first we do no harm. Primum non nocere. Thank you. <laughs>